Welcome, I'm Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Full and edited versions of our podcasts are available on our website at www.cato.org. The last 25 years have seen a dramatic rise in paramilitary-style police raids, where SWAT teams storm in unannounced and without knocking. Most often used to serve drug warrants, no-knock raids needlessly subject nonviolent drug offenders, bystanders, and wrongly targeted suspects to the terror of having their homes invaded while they're sleeping. Policy analyst Radley Balko documents this disturbing trend in his new white paper, Overkill, The Rise of Paramilitary Police Raids in America. In conjunction with the Policy Forum on No-Knock Raids at the Cato Institute this afternoon, today's podcast is a re-release of a previously recorded interview with Radley. Radley, why did this topic pique your interest? Obviously, as a libertarian, I've always been concerned about the drug war, and it's obviously part of my beat as a policy analyst here at Cato who covers civil liberties. And one thing I noticed while just sort of you know reading articles about the drug war was this: there seemed to be this continuing problem of police uh, on drug raids hitting the wrong home and rousing people from their sleep, breaking down doors at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, dragging kids out of bed at gunpoint and handcuffing them, and then realizing they had the wrong house. And it was happening over and over again. And, of course, you you obviously don't conclude that police are intentionally raiding the wrong house. And so uh, I started looking into it a little more and, and trying to figure out what policies in place were, were leading to these kinds of outcomes. And of course, I mean, the issue is very compelling when you read about an innocent family terrorized or someone who's been killed in one of these raids, an innocent person or even, a, you know, a recreational marijuana smoker. Obviously, it's it's the kind of thing that kind of grips you and, and gets your attention. Can you give us a general overview of your study? Sure. Uh, Overkill starts with a kind of an overview of the issue then goes into uh, the history of SWAT teams. And the SWAT teams actually had a, they were originally used the way they should be used for emergency situations like hostage takings or bank robberies. Now you might add terrorist incidents. But uh, when the Reagan administration ratcheted up the drug war in the 80s, SWAT teams were increasingly used to serve drug warrants, and, and that's primarily how they're used today. So the paper gives a history of SWAT teams, talks about the rise of SWAT teams through the 1980s, um, offers a little bit of the uh, the legal background on raids and um, you know no-knock or what I call quick-knock raids, and then offers some recommendations for reform. I think the sexiest part of the paper, if you will, is the appendix, which gives close to 200 case studies of raids gone wrong, botched raids. Uh, And these are pretty personal stories. We name the people who are on the other end of the raids, talk about what happened, what went wrong. In some cases, the people were just really frightened and scared. Sometimes people were hurt. And of course, we found lots of cases where innocent people have been killed, um, about 30, probably another 20 to 25 where uh, nonviolent offenders were killed and then about a dozen cases where police officers have been killed. And of course, the point is that all these were unnecessary. There's just really no reason to bring what amounts to a urban warfare unit to serve a drug warrant. That sounds very compelling. Can you share some of these stories? Sure. I guess three come to mind that have been in the headlines just in the last year or so. One is Sal Colosi, which was a case here in the D.C. area in Fairfax, Virginia. Colosi was a optometrist in Fairfax, a uh, professional guy, no criminal record, no history of violence, uh, never really had any problems, but he liked to bet on sports games. And an uh, undercover detective from Fairfax Police Department uh, met Colosi in a bar, uh, befriended him, 
became sort of part of the the circle of friends uh, that were betting on these games and eventually uh, persuaded Colosi to sort of up the ante on how much they were wagering uh, to the point where he tipped Virginia statute the minimum amount to trigger Virginia statute on running a gambling operation and uh, you know this is a again this is a professional guy you know no trouble to anyone all he was doing was betting on sports games with friends and they bring the SWAT team out to arrest him and uh, when he came out of the house to meet this officer, who obviously he, he thought was a friend, the SWAT team came out, surrounded him, and, and one of the officer's guns apparently accidentally went off and shot Colosi in the chest and killed him. And, you know, it's a sad case because there were, there were no guns in the house. The guy had made no intimidating moves toward the police officers at all. The officer claims he doesn't know why the gun fired, but there were no defects found in the gun. It's been tested. Uh, and there aren't going to be any charges pressed against the officer nor does it look like the Fairfax Police Department is really going to institute any reforms to make sure it doesn't happen again. We learned after the raid that Fairfax Police Department actually executes most of its search warrants with the SWAT team, even for white-collar crimes, which is just ridiculous. Another case uh, was in Baltimore of last year. This woman, Cheryl Lynn Knoll, who was a um, middle-aged mother, church-going woman, conducted Bible studies on her lunch break, uh, according to friends and neighbors. Her son had been into a little bit of trouble. Her husband had been convicted of second-degree murder 35 years ago. He explained to me that he and some friends had gotten in an altercation with with a homeless guy, and he was the only person over 18, so he was the one charged. But in any case, it was 35 years ago, and, you know, the guy's never been in any any trouble since. Nevertheless, um, after the son had gotten into some problems, the police did what they call a trash pull, where they started looking through the family's trash, and they found marijuana seeds. So they decided to conduct an no-knock raid with a SWAT team. They came at 5 o'clock in the morning, broke down the door, deployed flash grenades. One other note to the story, this woman's stepdaughter had been murdered about six years earlier. So she had a registered legal gun in the home. There's nothing illegitimate about the gun at all. But she wakes up, and of course she hears these explosions. Uh, she hears her door has been torn down. She hears people running up the steps. And her bedroom door flies open, and she's sitting up in bed holding the gun because she's scared to death, like I think anybody would be. And the officers see her and uh, shoot her twice. According to Charles Knoll, her husband, she was slumped over in the bed, and they walked over and shot her a third time, um, basically from point-blank range. Of course, the officer who shot her had a bulletproof vest and bulletproof shield, and you know this woman's in her nightgown, and and Noel was killed. Her family is filing a lawsuit now. The police say they announced themselves before they came in. Of course, if you're asleep upstairs, it's not really going to make a difference whether they say police before they break down your door. Neighbors on both sides of the house, and this is in a row house in Baltimore, say they didn't hear anything. Uh, they heard the whole raid, but they never heard anyone yell police. For a sort of a different perspective, I think a third story that's worth mentioning is the Corey May case. This was in 2001. This kid in Mississippi, 21 years old at the time, a black kid, was home with his uh, year-and-a-half-year-old daughter asleep, and police conducted a raid. Uh, he lived in a duplex. Uh, the guy next door to him was a known drug dealer. Uh, he had drug charges already pending against him, and he's described in the warrants as a known drug dealer. May's apartment is listed in a separate warrant, but his name was never listed. It's just listed as persons unknown. 
And a, a confidential informant apparently tipped this police officer to the fact that there was marijuana uh, in the duplex. So the police raid the first side, the known drug dealer, and, and arrest him with no problem. May was asleep when they raided, and according to his account, woke up to the sound of someone breaking down his door and ran to the bedroom to get a gun because, you know, when you live in a bad neighborhood and you live next to a known drug dealer, it probably makes sense to have a gun nearby. Um, laid down with his daughter. The door flew open. The first officer in may fired, thinking it was an intruder. One bullet hit the guy and, and killed him. Unfortunately for May, the officer turned out to be the son of the town's police chief and a white cop, black kid. It's in deep Mississippi, in Jefferson Davis County, Mississippi. And May was uh, eventually convicted of capital murder and uh, is on death row today uh, in Mississippi. Uh, th- there are all kinds of other aspects of this story that uh, <laughs> don't uh, don't pass the smell test, I guess, beyond just the, the, the paramilitary tactics used in the drug raid. But, you know, I think the bottom line, though, again, is that this is kicking down the doors of civilians for nonviolent drug crimes has become sort of, you know, it's not even extraordinary anymore. It happens about 100 times a day in this country. And uh, I think we need to look at these kinds of cases and realize that they're not anomalies. They happen fairly frequently. And, you know, I, I think we just more broadly need to ask ourselves if we want to live in a society where our police department, our police officers, I guess, peace officers, you know, use tactics that are more appropriate for the battlefield than they are in a civil society. I understand there's an interactive map that goes along with your study. Yeah, as I said, the appendix of the paper documents about, I think, just under 200 case studies. But there are probably closer to 300 that I came across over the course of my research. And I'm sure there are hundreds more that I haven't discovered or that were never reported to the media. Uh, One theme is that people are often too scared to come forward when this happens to them. But the cases we did find, we've plotted on an interactive map on the Cato website, and it's a a Google Maps application, so you can zoom in and zoom out. You can zoom in all the way to street level, actually. You can sort the raids. You can do searches by year or by state or by what happened in the raid, for instance, the the death of an innocent or the death of a police officer and so forth. And I think it's a a pretty powerful visual uh, refutation of the argument that these are isolated incidents and, and rarely happen. We uh, used a quote from Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy from the recent Hudson case who said, if someone could show a pattern of abuse with respect to these kinds of raids, there would be cause for grave concern. And I think the the only reason Kennedy could write something like that is because nobody has yet compiled a comprehensive list of botched raids, and that's what we're trying to do with the uh, with the study and with the map. To access the interactive map, please go to www.cato.org slash raidmap. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.